Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things you can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I said you can all do. After after 1,800, or I'm sorry, 2,000 plus episodes, you think I'd have it right, that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Proof that there's very little editing at the Survival Podcast. I think people think that I'll spend a lot of time editing. I spent a lot of time researching, assembling, and getting content together for you guys. Very little time editing. I actually usually let my foo bars go, and that wasn't really a foo bar, but it was a foo. All right. Some of you know what that means and some of you don't. If you don't, I don't know what rock you've been living under for 50 years, but just go put into Google F-U-B-A-R. You'll find out what a FUBAR is. And then you'll find out what an F-U is, which you should know by now. Anyway, it's Friday. I'm in a good mood. Uh, I got some deer meat in the smoker. That'll put you in a good mood. I've got a great lineup. That puts me in a good mood. So what do we got today? I got choosing the right power supply for a radio from Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus. I got getting the most out of your HSA or health savings account with medical prepping from Nurse Amy. I've got making your own cleaning supplies from the awesome Erica Strauss. I've got a Leo's feedback on the nurse arrest in Salt Lake City that I kind of blew my shit on uh, earlier this week. Uh, I think Dan Orman might be a little more calm, but I think he kind of shares my opinion, maybe even a little more strongly. Uh, restoring an apple orchard in Vermont from Ben Falk. The advantages of keeping an older car from Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic. Sorting out two new cryptocurrencies. From Brandon Todd and getting a ding out of a prize blade from Patrick Roman and I will finish the show up today with what we should be learning from all the current disasters going on in the country right now. All that and more in just a bit before we do that. Let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was from history. We are still in the year 55. Um, Southpaw Ben has added a segment for us to the year 55, so I'll read that now. Masurius Sabanis publishes the Treaty on Civil Law, contributed by Southpaw Ben. This year, Sabanius publishes his three-volume Treaty on Civil Law. While his works were lost to history, later jurists will write commentaries about them, but unfortunately did include excerpts from his original work. He helped found one of the most, two most important schools of law in Rome during the first and second centuries, known as the Sambian School. Marcius was also the first person to give Publis responde, which meant a state-certified opinion, a privilege granted by the emperor, and this new privilege marked the increase in the amount of imperial control over the judicial process in this period, a flux that marks the end of the Rome Republic and start of the empire. Prior to this privilege, the value of legal opinions rested solely on the expertise of those who gave them. My take by Southpaw Ben. This reminds me of a news story where a man with an electrical engineering degree from Sweden was fined $500 for claiming to be an excellent engineer while discussing issues with red light cameras in the state of Oregon. The Oregon State Board of Examiners of, for Engineering and Land Surveying says that only a state licensed engineers may call themselves engineers or practice engineering. While the U.S. is by no means a repeating history when it compared to Rome during this time period, it definitely rhymes, to borrow a phrase from Mark Twain. The U.S. should stay alert to how we are heading down a similar path and try to fix our bearing in the course towards liberty or tyranny. 
And since none of us are at the helm, we should make damn sure that we have our own life vests and boats ready to make our own lives better for when times get tough or even if they don't. I would indeed agree. And that is an ex a perfect example of the state overstepping its bounds. Stating that you are an engineer is absolutely preposterous that the state would tell you, well, you can't say that unless we've licensed you as an engineer. Because the concept of engineering predates the American state. You don't get to have a monopoly on a word like that. Now, if they want to say, if you want to do business in the state as an engineer, while I'm opposed to it, I get what they're saying. But simply stating that, hey, I have the credentials of an engineer or I have an engineering degree, when you're giving your opinion to them and they come back and slap you with a fine, that's a bunch of bullshit. And there's more and more things like that. And I think one of the things we're going to hear about today is problems with law enforcement from a retired law enforcement officer. This is kind of how I feel about that. One of the reasons we have so many damn problems with interactions with law enforcement is we have so many damn reasons to be interacting with them. There are too many laws. There are too many codes. I'll put it to you this way. And this is a while ago. I was a, I was a teenager. I was in a situation one time where a police officer showed up and basically just told everybody to leave and go home. But he also said, you're all going to be arrested. Not now, eventually. Like, you'll all be arrested for this later. And me being a cocky, stupid kid, and this still worked out okay, said, what are we going to be arrested for? And he said, I'll find a reason for it. To which one of my buddies, who was a little bit older than me, grabbed me by the shoulder. He said, we were told to leave, let's leave. Okay, so we left. Now nothing ever came of it. But what always stuck in my head about that was if he really wanted to, he probably could have. And that is not how it should work. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your stuff today for the expert counsel. The first question that I have today is for expert council member Tim Glantz on choosing the right power supply for a radio. With that, hey, Tim, man, take it away. Hey, everybody, Tim Glantz here with the Old Grouch Military Surplus and also ham radio operator W4WTF uh, with an expert panel answer today for uh, Gas Man from the forums, who's asking what kind of power supply should he get for a Yezu 450D amateur radio. 450D, uh, first Gas Man, that is a great little radio. Uh, I think you're going to be happy with it. And uh, there's two answers to that question, and uh, neither is wrong, but one is a lot more right than the other from a prepping perspective. Uh, Your radio runs on 12 volts, 12 to 14 volts DC, as do almost all uh, modern ham rigs these days. And so option one is to get a simple power supply that plugs into the wall. Uh, you'll need at least a 20 amp for that radio. That converts 110 volts to 12 volts. But in the prepping world, you're not, you know you're not always going to have that AC power. So the better option is get some deep cycle batteries and a system to charge them. You can either do uh, solar charging or you can do a uh, uh, 110 operated charger that you then run off of. Or you can do a co any combination of it depending on your situation. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you, uh, you know, how to set up those 12 volt batteries. I'm going to tell you. Just go back and listen to any of the great episodes that Stephen Harris did about setting up a battery backup power supply 
and listen to those and do what he says because those 12 volt battery backups are exactly what you need to run your radio and then just look at uh you know how much time you plan to use it for transmitting because you're only going to draw your full power when you're transmitting full power on receive it's a very low draw and uh, as i always say 99 percent of what we need to do in the communications world is listening not talking so uh, look at how much power you're going to need and look at how much battery capacity you're going to need Use those formulas for determining how much you need that Stephen talks about in those episodes and uh, use that to build that up. And then you've also got that battery backup that you can then use for all the other great purposes that he, Mr. Harris talks about uh, in that episode. So you're killing two birds with one stone. So that's the way I would go, and that is the way I have gone with most of my ham radio stuff. I have uh, actually, because I have way too many radios, I have some of them that are on a battery system and some that are on AC power. But the ones that are on AC power are the ones that I don't have to operate when the grid is down. They're just the ones I play with, not the ones that are important. The important ones are all running off deep cycle battery systems that I actually have uh, three different ways to charge. I've got, uh, they're maintained with an AC battery charger, a smart charger that keeps them topped off. I have solar panels that I can keep them off, although I do not have them permanently mounted at my place right now, so they'll only be deployed as needed. And then I also have a small generator that I built using a lawnmower engine and a GM alternator that I can fire up and charge them off and charge them pretty quick with that. So uh, just get yourself a good battery system, get yourself multiple ways to keep it charged, and you will be good to go. Hope that helps, and as always, if anybody has any questions, my email is on the website at oldgrouch.com. And uh, thanks for listening, and Jack, as always, thanks for the great show. Great stuff, and what I like about that is it pretty much tells anybody with a radio how to find the right power supply for their radio versus how to find just the right supply for the radio that was asked about. Anyway, got another question here, and we're finally hearing from Nurse Amy on the council instead of just Doc Bones, man. And uh, this is a great question. You got some money to spend, and you want to put it in your medical preps, but you also got this HSA or HAS, depending on how it's called where you are, and that creates a tax advantage. So how do we maximize those two things at the same time? Nurse Amy, take it away. Hi, I'm Amy Alton, ARNP, also known as Nurse Amy of the Survival Medicine website, doomandbloom.net, and the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Rob, who writes, what is the best way to spend 400 to $500 on medical preparedness that is health account savings or HAS friendly? Additionally, are your medical kits tax exempt under HAS rules? Rob, if you're going to invest 400 or $500 for a good medical kit that would let you function effectively as a medic in times of trouble, you'll need to know what the likely medical issues you'll confront if you find yourself off the grid after a disaster. Think about Hurricane Harvey coming. Here's a list from a doctor without borders who spent 15 months as the sole caregiver in a remote setting. Here's what he saw. Minor injuries, sprains, strains, and scrapes. That makes sense. Major injuries like hemorrhage, wounds, broken bones, and burns. Infections, including those that cause dehydration by diarrhea, fever, and other issues. Allergic reactions, heat stroke, hypothermia, skin rashes, dental issues, even birth control and pregnancy issues. Now, we don't have the time to go into everything you'll need 
to deal with all these issues, but here are some things that are at least at the top of the list in my mind. Tourniquets, blood clotting agents like Celox or Quick Clot, burn gels, things to take care of severe burns and pain, various types of bandages, dressings and gauze, water purification tablets. People are going to need to be rehydrated after that severe diarrheal disease. All sorts of over-the-counter medications. Again, look out for expiration dates. Splints, wraps, instant cold, and packs that can be reheated. Instruments, lighting sources, dental supplies, and much more. Just as an aside, we do have a YouTube channel called DR Bones Nurse Amy with lots of videos on several of these supplies and how to use them. I have one that's called Survival Gauze. Very exciting. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It will tell you a lot about the gauze and the dressings and when you use sterile and when you use other things and how to put them on. How much do you need? Well, that's going to depend on the number of people you'll be caring for and hint it's more than you expect. Plus, how rugged the terrain is, how hostile the neighbors are. You can never have too many medical supplies. In the price range you mentioned, or even a little more, you might consider checking out some of our large bags like the Stomp Plus, uh, the Stomp Supreme, and my first bag I ever made, the Family Medical Bag. You can check those out at store.doomandbloom.net. Not to necessarily buy them, but you'll find that we freely publish all the little details and content list. So you can take that and DIY your own bag. Of course, if you don't have the time to accumulate all these supplies, piecemeal yourself, you can get one of our bags to match you and your family's needs. Our medical kits are indeed tax-exempt under health savings accounts, and I'm happy to provide a special receipt if needed. We have never had a customer who bought one of our kits under the HSA rules that ever had a problem with getting reimbursed. Really great news. All you have to do is reach out to me, and I'm happy to give you a special receipt. Thanks for the super awesome question, Rob. I really appreciate it. This is the second one I've got to answer. Yay! Don't forget, we have a special coupon for Jack's member support brigade. Lots of great people in there, folks, if you want to join. And please check out our website at doomandbloom.net. We'd appreciate your visit very much. Please be healthy and safe, everyone, and I'll see you next time. This is Nurse Amy. Bye-bye. Great stuff from Nurse Amy. Exactly what I would expect. The lady's spot on with stuff like this, as you would expect. Anyway, next question, also got another female member of the council coming up here. Erica Strauss on making your own uh, cleaners for the household that are safe and, and, and easy to use. And let me tell you, she went a little long on this one. I usually tell them they have 10 minutes. She went more like 15. This is like a mini podcast on this subject. But get ready to learn a lot. Erica, take it away. Hey, TSP, is Erica Strauss calling in to answer Mike in Boise, Idaho's question about basic cleaning supplies, DIY cleaning. Mike says, hey, Erica, what kitchen and bath cleaners do you recommend using? I remember that you mentioned making your own cleaners. Would you mind going into more detail about what you use, your recipes, bulk ingredients that you keep on hand, etc.? Sure, Mike, I'd love to. There are four basic cleaners I keep on hand, and I'll talk about each of them in turn today. With these four cleaning items, you're going to be able to cover pretty much all of your daily cleanup and a good slice of even your more specialized or seasonal cleaning items that might come up. Almost all of the cleaners that I use and recommend you can make easily from a couple of bulk ingredients at home. Most of these items you probably already have. 
Okay, your four cleaners. One is going to be a mildly alkaline all-purpose spray cleaner. The second is going to be a more intense grease cutting spray. The third is an acidic spray cleaner, excellent for use in bathrooms. And the fourth is going to be a scrubbing powder for when only muscling through the dirt is going to do it. Now, no one who's been hearing my segments on TSP for the last couple of years is going to be surprised about this, but I find the chemistry of DIY household cleaners totally geek outable. I could talk about this stuff for hours, but uh, to make everyone happy, I'm going to try and uh, contain myself, keep this quick, and just give you only enough science to make it easy to understand what cleaning tool you want for what cleaning job. All right. Your first cleaner should be an all-purpose cleaner. So a mildly alkaline soap-based cleaner that's good for general purpose wash-up of things like countertops or spot cleaning of linoleum, tile, or hardwood floors. An all-purpose cleaner is going to be strong enough and versatile enough to take care of most of your daily cleanup needs all throughout the house, but gentle enough that you just don't need to stress about what kind of surface you use it on. The all-purpose cleaner I use, the recipes in my book, The Hands-On Home, I'll just read it out for you guys. Basically, you want to start with a rugged industrial 32-ounce spray bottle. That's how I start all of my cleaning sprays with a uh, sort of commercial-style 32-ounce spray bottle. You can find these at stores like Home Depot or Lowe's or at industrial supply or restaurant supply stores. So into your 32-ounce spray bottle, add two tablespoons of borax, which is a powder, one half teaspoon of liquid soap. I use a Castile soap, which is an all natural soap. If you want, you can use something like Dawn, which is a liquid detergent, and then just warm water to fill that 32 ounce spray bottle. Give yourself about an inch of room at the top just to kind of mix everything up. Lid everything up really well and give the whole thing a shake to dissolve the borax and to let everything just kind of mix up. Once it's cool, if you want, totally optional, add about 30 drops of peppermint essential oil and a drop of green food coloring. The peppermint essential oil is just for niceness. It doesn't do anything from a cleaning perspective, just gives a nice, mild scent. The green food coloring helps to make sure that no one mistakes your cleaning product for water. Um, I, I tint my all of my DIY cleaning products because I have young children and I I do recommend that if you have kids, you do something, including adding maybe a little drop of food coloring to make sure that your children can differentiate um, between cleaning products and just play water, that kind of stuff. But that's up to you. You can feel free to skip the essential oils entirely or use a different oil or color, etc., as fits your taste. If you want more of a manly scent, you might go with a sandalwood essential oil. If you want a very feminine spray, you might go with lavender. If you want your whole house to smell like dirty hippies, use patchouli. All you, you choose. Okay, while we're talking about essential oils, this is a great point to jump into our second essential home cleaner. Um, this is going to be a stronger grease cutter, a more aggressively alkaline cleaner, and it's also going to exploit an essential oil uh, orange oil. Orange oil is about 90% D-limonene. D-limonene is a very powerful solvent. Um, if you've ever seen a TV infomercial for a citrus cleaner or gone into an auto shop and seen things like orange cleaner booster, you know that citrus cleaners are extremely effective at stripping grease. 
the primary chemical component of orange essential oil, that D-limonene, is very effective at cutting through tenacious petroleum-based oils and greases. In fact, if you use it straight, orange essential oil will eventually eat right through paint. So don't do anything like that. I mean, have some respect. But if you use this orange essential oil in combination with a Castile soap and washing soda, the result will be a very effective grease cutting alkaline cleaner that will cut right through tougher, greasier dirt, the kind of thing you might find in the kitchen, on your stove, on your grill, that kind of thing. So again, get yourself a rugged 32 ounce industrial spray bottle, add one tablespoon of liquid Castile soap, two teaspoons of washing soda, and warm water to fill. Lid everything up, give it a shake just to dissolve the washing soda and mix up that soap. Let everything cool for a little bit and then add 30 drops of sweet orange essential oil. Now the essential oil, the orange oil in this cleaner isn't optional. It's there for not just a fresh scent, but also its cleaning capability. The third cleaner you're going to want to have on hand is a good acidic cleaner without getting too far into the chemistry of acid-base reactions. What we've got here is going to do a really good job of complementing our two prior cleaners, which were both alkali. Alkali cleaners do their best on organic dirt, basically a mess that's origins are in something that was once alive, like food waste, general household grime, oils, that kind of thing. Acidic cleaners are kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. They really excel when dealing with inorganic soil. So that's a cleanup job that involves dirt that comes from stuff that was never alive. So if you live in an area with hard water, think of the uh, mineral deposits or hard water deposits that come out of your faucet, any kind of the grime that accumulates on your plumbing fixtures, anything like that. That is mineral mineral buildup. It's basically, you know, tiny bits of rock. It was never alive and it's certainly not going to be washed away by a soap that does a really good job of dissolving oils and fats and that kind of thing. What it needs is an acidic cleaner that's going to dissolve away that mineral buildup. So what you need for this is an acidic pH. Our acid cleaner is our go-to guy for these inorganic grimes like mineral deposits and scale and rust, that kind of stuff. And we're going to start with another rugged 32-ounce spray bottle and add to that two and a half cups of water, one and a half cups of distilled white vinegar, same kind of stuff you use for canning, 5% white vinegar is totally fine, 20 drops of lemon or lemongrass essential oil, 10 drops of grapefruit essential oil, and one drop of yellow food coloring. Mix this all up gently and it's ready to go. You can skip the food coloring and the essential oil. It's just there for the aroma. It's not necessary for the cleaning power. However, I do really like making my spray bottles easy to sort of visually differentiate. And the food coloring does go a long way to nicely sort of make it easy to see at a glance what I have, what I'm low on, that kind of thing. Okay, at this point, let's review for a minute. What we have are three spray bottles. One is our minty green all-purpose cleaner. 
This is the one you're going to reach for the most. Then you've got your orange grease cutter for tougher organic and petroleum sconge. This is going to be great in the kitchen for really tough cleanup jobs. Might also be good in the shop or in the garage if you've got some, uh, you know, grease cutting needs there. And then finally, you've got a lemony acid cleaner for inorganic scale and hard water buildup. In order to stay organized with my cleaning, I have a caddy in my mudroom that has a bottle of each of these three sprays in it. So anytime I need to go on a cleaning mission in my house, I've got everything I need in one spot. A crucial thing to remember here is that you cannot make a super cleaner or some sort of jack of all trades, all purpose, you know, all solve in one spray just by mixing together an acid cleaner and an alkaline cleaner. It does not work that way. For starters, all you're going to do is average out your pH and bring the whole thing towards neutral and undermine the ability of each type of cleaner, alkaline or acidic, to tackle the particular kind of cleanup job that it handles best. Uh, This is a problem that a lot of commercial sort of all-in-one, one-bottle miracle cleaners have. They try to do all jobs, but they end up doing none particularly well. They end up like a spork. I mean, a spork doesn't really work as a spoon or a fork. You don't want your cleaning products to be like that. And then beyond that, there's a safety aspect. When it comes to mixing and matching with your DIY cleanup things, um, acid-based chemical reactions can be interesting at best or actually quite dangerous at worst. I'm assuming everyone listening knows that you never mix ammonia and bleach, right? I mean, there are chemical combinations that can end up synergistically creating very toxic gases that you do not want to breathe in. So a mixing cleaners is just a very bad idea. Uh, you don't want to do it and it's not going to get you a more effective cleaner anyway. All right, finally, there's the fourth cleaner we should talk about. There are times when the magic of acid-based chemistry, of saponification, and of solvents just is not going to get the job done. And what you need is good old-fashioned elbow grease. So this is a time for a scrubbing powder. A scrubbing powder is a dry cleaner. It's kept dry until it's needed. There are plenty of good commercial dry cleaning scrubbers out there, ranging from mild ones like Bonami, which I really like, to more aggressive products like Comet, which I really recommend you don't use because it has a tendency to scratch up all the surfaces of your house. Uh, but when it comes to these uh, abrasive cleaners, it's actually quite easy to make your own from things you probably already have on hand. Get yourself a wide mouth quart mason jar and add the following. One cup of baking soda, one cup of borax, one cup kosher salt, 20 drops of lemon essential oil, 20 drops of sweet orange essential oil, To use, you just want to shake a bit of uh, the scrubbing powder onto a damp towel or sponge and then scrub your surface until it is clean. Obviously, rinse and dry well. One handy tip that works really nicely for the scrubbing powder is you can make yourself a DIY shaker lid from a mason jar. Just use one of those screw-on plastic lids or one of the two-piece standard canning lids. Drill a dozen or so holes into the top of the lid with a fine drill bit, like a 132nd inch drill bit, and you've got yourself an instant scrubbing powder dispenser. Very easy. 
I keep my scrubbing powder uh, in my tote with the other three spray cleaners just so I am ready to go for any tough cleaning job that comes along. All these recipes are from my book, The Hands-On Home, which has a bunch of other DIY cleaning recipes, including a glass cleaner, toilet cleaner, carpet cleaner, laundry detergent, and even basic soap making instructions. So if you're serious about going DIY with your home care, I do think that my book, I mean, humbly, I think it's a really good resource. I think you should check it out. Go to Jack's T-Spaz link and click through, do a search for The Hands-On Home. You can read reviews and see if it would be a good addition to to your homestead library. Okay, Mike, I hope this gets you started with DIY home cleaners. For everyone out there in TSP land, this has been Erica Strauss from Northwest Edible Life and wedible.com for the expert counsel. Thank you guys so much. Keep those questions on food preservation, small-scale urban home setting, and productive homekeeping coming. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Bye. Next up, and I've been looking forward to listening to this one, and I decided that I would listen to it with you instead of in advance of the show. Uh, so I haven't heard the answer yet, but this is from Dan Oman, who is a former uh, police officer, spent a lot of time working the streets and as a detective. And it is in response to the way that the officer treated the nurse in Salt Lake City, and he actually explains that if you're not familiar with the case. So I'll let it go there, but uh, I look forward to hearing this one with you guys. But I have a feeling... He ain't going to have a good opinion of the guy. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Hey, guys, this is Dan from the Expert Council answering your questions on law enforcement and criminal justice in general. And today I got a comment from John regarding the incident in Salt Lake City involving a detective arresting a nurse in the hospital. John sent a link to a YouTube video where the officer's body cams captured this whole incident. And John said, I just saw this video and wanted to puke. I'm curious to what you think of this. I find it repulsive, but there may be more to the story. We'll see. So, John, you want to know what I think of this. Well, I 100% concur with you, sir. It is indeed repulsive. This is anger-inducing. And if you're not angry after watching this video... Go back, watch it again, and imagine that's your daughter or your wife. Okay, so what happened here? Let me set up the incident. The Utah State Patrol was involved in a vehicle pursuit. They were chasing a suspect, and the suspect vehicle crashed into a tractor trailer head-on. As a result of the collision, the suspect was killed, and the driver of the tractor trailer was badly injured. He was taken to the hospital. He was unconscious and burned, not in good shape. The Utah State Patrol asked for assistance with the investigation. They asked for the Salt Lake City Police Department to obtain a blood sample for toxicology testing from the victim. This is standard in that kind of investigation. The toxicology report is used to determine if the state of the victim prior to the incident was a contributing factor to the collision. If the suspect had lived, there would have been a criminal prosecution and a defense attorney would attack the investigation of the officers if they hadn't gathered the toxicology information from the victim. In this case, there obviously won't be a criminal case against the suspect because he's dead. 
but there could be a civil suit filed by the victim against the state for chasing the suspect, which resulted in the collision and his injuries. If the victim had any evidence of alcohol or drugs in a system, the state would most certainly present that in the civil suit as part of their defense. But regardless of the motive of the state here, the best practice in any investigation is to gather all the information, whether it's inculpatory or exculpatory. My opinion is exculpatory evidence, which is basically evidence that exonerates guilt, is just as important as inculpatory evidence, which shows criminal involvement. But in this particular case, it's really all a moot point anyway. As the nurse pointed out in the video, any of the results from the blood test, had it been taken, would have been dramatically skewed by all the pharmaceuticals that had been administered to the patient given the level of his trauma. So in comes the Salt Lake City Police Department to the hospital to collect their blood from the victim so they can do the toxicology report. Detective Jeff Payne responded to the University of Utah Hospital. He is a certified phlebotomist for the police department. It's part of a program that the police department in Salt Lake City has where they have um, medical training to actually do the blood extraction themselves rather than using a medical professional. The charge nurse on duty at the time was Alex Woobles, and she informed Detective Payne that he could not draw the blood because it is a violation of the hospital policy if the police do not have a warrant, the consent of the patient, or the patient is in custody. Payne admitted none of the conditions had been met, but insisted on drawing the blood anyway. The nurse politely informed, and I can't stress this, this enough, she was quite polite and otherwise cooperative throughout the incident. She, it wasn't like she was belligerent and nasty and getting in the, the detective's face or anything like that. She was very polite, and she informed the detective again that she couldn't allow it. She was on the phone with her supervisor, and her supervisor was saying, no, we have to follow hospital policy. The detective became angry and forcefully arrested the nurse. He didn't just tell her quietly and politely, ma'am, please turn around, put your hands behind your back. He lunged at her, trying to snatch the phone out of her hand, and got physical with her. The detective effected the arrest and brought the nurse outside of the hospital area, put her in his police vehicle, and buckled her in the front seat. At this point in the video, we see a Lieutenant Tracy showing up. He's a supervisor on duty, and he gets in a conversation with the nurse, and he starts telling her that she is basically interfering with her investigation, at which point the nurse tries to explain to him the hospital policy, and he says, basically, the policy is irrelevant. We're following the law. He went on to say that he had been doing this for 22 years, and he knew the law, and if the police were wrong, there are civil remedies for that. Eventually, after some time, it's determined that perhaps the nurse didn't actually violate the law, and she was released. The detective was taken off of the blood drawing unit, so he was not able to go to the hospital and perform this function anymore, but he was still otherwise performing the duties of a police officer. It wasn't until this incident went viral through the media that the police department actually put the detective on administrative leave during the investigation. So my analysis of this is Detective Payne and Lieutenant Tracy were completely 100% wrong here, and they violated their oath. Regardless of the hospital policy or whatever the police department's policy was, they cannot, cannot seize a blood sample from someone without their consent or a warrant. 
in 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled on Missouri v. McNeely, which clearly states it's a Fourth Amendment violation to seize blood without a warrant. In some states, during DUI investigations, there can be criminal charges placed against the suspect in the investigation if they do not submit to the state a sample of their blood, breath, or urine. That's something called implied consent. In some states, it's not necessarily a criminal offense not to provide it. It's a civil offense where you automatically get your license suspended during what's called an ALS hearing or automatic license suspension for failing to comply with your implied consent agreement. So what is implied consent? Implied consent is an agreement that the state says you make when you get a driver's license and then operate a motor vehicle on the state's roadways. You have to submit a sample of your blood, breath, or urine upon the request of the state in the event that you're suspected of drunk driving or driving under the influence of narcotics. There was no evidence whatsoever in this case that I have found that indicates that the driver of the tractor trailer was intoxicated. Okay, so if the police take the blood without the consent of the victim or a warrant, it's a Fourth Amendment violation. Okay, so we can't get the consent because he is unconscious, so why not get a warrant? Well, because, again, there is no evidence. In order to get a search warrant, you have to have probable cause. Here, there is no evidence to suggest that the victim was driving under the influence. Therefore, there is no probable cause to get a search warrant. The police knew this, which is why they hadn't petitioned to get a search warrant. When I was a detective and didn't have enough evidence for a search warrant in an investigation, I had to rely on getting consent. Police do not like being told no. I always prepared myself mentally for being told no when doing an investigation where I needed to get consent and then calmly leaving the situation and coming up with a different solution to the problem. Detective Payne obviously didn't do that. He was mad that she told him no, and he thought he would arrest her for obstruction to show her who's boss, basically. This is called a POP offense, or pissing off the police. Even if she had been in violation of the law, the way he arrested her was completely unnecessarily rough. Payne was being vindictive here. If you don't think he was being vindictive, then listen to this. Payne moonlights as an EMT and brings patients to the hospital as part of his EMT duties. After this whole incident with the nurse was coming to a conclusion, there is a recording of Payne saying to one of the other officers, I'll only bring them transients and I'll take the good patients somewhere else. This is vindictive. That's all this was. So what's going to happen here? Payne will be fired. There's no way with all this community outrage for it not to happen. If you guys remember my commentary from the Charlottesville incident where we talked about the influence the city council and the mayor has on the chief and that the chief of police serves at their pleasure, I guarantee that this council has basically informed the chief that this guy needs to go because with this much outrage from the community that if they don't do something, they're not getting reelected. So what should happen here? In my opinion, Payne should be charged with false imprisonment for arresting the nurse and battery by the way he handled her. I'm really encouraged that the DA for the county is calling for a criminal investigation. And Lieutenant Tracy, who again was a supervisor of the incident and supposedly gave the order to Payne to make the arrest if she did not cooperate, he is absolutely culpable in this as well. 
I recorded this answer on September 2nd, so this is just after the incident went viral. I believe September 1st is when it first got released. By the time this answer airs, there may be a lot more information out about the case, so I'll be keeping an eye on it and seeing if there's any applicable updates to be done. So if you guys did pause the recording and you went over and watched that video and you find yourself a little angry right now, Go check out some of my videos on the Grassfed Homestead YouTube channel. We have a lot of cute livestock in our videos that you can watch that should take your blood pressure down a few points. Cops, Leos, you want respect back? Do what he just did. Do what he just did. Be honest. Speak up. Don't hide your opinions when, someone, when, when one of these people does this stuff, when somebody breaks the oath. Dan, thank you. Thank you for speaking uh, quite eloquently and very much to the facts of the situation and with integrity. I appreciate having you on the council. Next, I have a question for Ben Falk on uh, restoring an apple orchard. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben with Whole Systems Design. Um, question about the apples in uh, on South Hero, Vermont. Actually, I know that area pretty well. used to work on a farm there. Um, yeah, that's a great climate for fruit production. It's about the best in Vermont. Um, the coast of Lake Champlain, some of the best for apples in the country. And um, But that being said, that means you'll have some disease pressure because there are commercial orchards, I think, still on the islands and definitely in the region. Um, if I read your question right, it sounds like you said there's a lot of trees but no apples on them. That's pretty odd because this year's a very good apple year second in a row and so if there's no apples on them now that that'd be pretty odd um you start to assess apple trees or any other fruit tree really by looking at the base if they're pretty good at the base um then you know they should be pretty productive or they're worth renovating and pruning but if they're not good at the base then they might not be um Mulching can help, you know, spraying effective microorganisms and compost tea during the early part of the growing season especially can help, um, you know, gilding up 80 trees would be a big job, but starting with some small numbers might be helpful. But honestly, just mulching and doing the sprays can, can be a lot more bang for the buck than starting to try to plant a lot of stuff below them, especially in this climate, having a lot of understory. I don't think it's helpful from a disease management perspective, um, but it can just increase your overall effectiveness of the ecosystem that you're trying to manage. So there'd be some thoughts um, off the bat. I mean, pruning is usually very helpful. Whatever you can do to feed the soil and then trying to feed the plant directly via sprays, organic, you know, foliar feeds uh, of various kinds can be helpful aerobic compost tea effective micro microorganisms are, are useful on that front um so good luck with it and um thanks for the question okay what, what i would add to that is i i think it would be a really good idea for you to get over to howard garrett's website and check out what's called the sick tree treatment with as old as the orchard is and ben didn't read the whole email but it's a fairly old orchard And obviously, since it was run somewhat commercially, most likely they were probably doing things like mulching and bringing a lot of material in, and that's all good. But it's highly likely that the 
the surrounding earth has actually built up on the trees and has covered uh, the root flares. And it may be, a, like with larger trees, something where you want to either rent or build your own tool called an air spade, which basically just uses compressed air to remove dirt and actually expose the root flare, in the words of Howard Garrett, so it has a dramatic flare. And then in addition to the things that, that Ben mentioned, do the entire what is known as sick tree treatment, which involves creating some aeration. Uh, usually that can be done depending on how much needs to be done, but usually for you know a few trees or whatever, uh, a, uh, an old golf club with the head broke off of it, just basically poke a bunch of holes into the ground around the tree, add some rock minerals and things like um, sugars, like um, horticultural molasses, a good drenching and spraying with something like Garrett Juice or Garrett Juice itself, and I bet you you'll have an entirely different experience next year. Well, you have our neglected trees, that, and they probably have many issues. And, you know, a good pruning and things like that as well may be necessary because they probably haven't been taken care of. But please check out the sick tree treatment. And it's when I have a tree that's not performing the way that I expect, it's the first thing that I look at is the sick tree treatment. And uh, it took me a, for a while to become a believer in exposing the root flare. But once I did it and I saw what happened, then all of my doubts went away. Uh, so I really recommend that. Okay, next question we have is for Charles the Humble Mechanic. I'm keeping, you know, an older, easy-to-work-on car around. What are the benefits and detriments of doing that? Charles, take it away. What's up, TSP? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes from Kyle, and Kyle wants to know what are the pros and cons of having an older, reliable vehicle that is both paid off and easy to work on. The details are, Kyle owns two late 80s Broncos. Both have four-wheel drive, 302. The only difference really is the comfort options. I'm thinking that with all the similarities in the ways of these trucks are set up, there's a two is one, one is none situation here. I'm finding that it's worth my time and money to do the maintenance on both of these paid-off trucks once a month or so, rather than paying a little more money for a newer car note. Well, Kyle, good question, and it's kind of neat that you own two of a similar or largely the same vehicle. That is definitely a two-is-one type deal. I'm picturing a starter going out on the one you need to drive, and you could just take the starter off the other one and jam it in and go. So what are some pros and cons of owning older vehicles and doing the work yourself? Well, you said two of them already. One, they're paid for. In my opinion, making car payments super sucks. I am not a fan of it. We went years and years and years without making a car payment, and it was awesome. Uh, now we have a lease on a 2015 Tiguan that ends next year. I still hate making that payment, but it's stupid cheap by car note standards. It's like 190 bucks a month, so it's really, really affordable. Uh, side note... The average car payment in the U.S. is almost $500 a month. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. But yeah, it's paid for, so that's a super benefit. What you could do is you could take maybe the car you would buy and what that would cost per month, start saving that amount, portion some of it out for your maintenance and repairs on your Broncos, 
and then the rest and maybe start saving for a newer car when the time comes because, let's face it, the time will come. Like you mentioned, it's easy to work on. Now, this is really important if you are a DIYer. If you're a DIYer, this is great because you're doing all or you know maybe most of the maintenance on these older vehicles. And I really think that people should know how to do the basics on their car. Not necessarily do them. I'm no fan of doing oil changes, let me tell you, but I sure know how to do one, and I think people should know how to do things like do brakes, do an oil change, air filter, pollen filter, wiper blades, and change bulbs, whether they have an older car or a newer car. Then they can decide for themselves whether they want to do it. But if you're a DIYer and you can do, you know, 85-90% of the stuff, this is awesome. You're saving a ton of money by not having to pay someone else to do the work for you. The other good things about older vehicles and even if you're paying someone to do them work for you oftentimes you can take it to a place with a much lower labor rate than say the dealership i'd be willing to bet that if you rolled into the dealership with those two ford broncos there's maybe one tech in the entire area that you live in that worked for ford at the dealership way back then the dealership is built to work on the newer cars not the older stuff so you can probably find someone that still knows these cars pretty well, and you'll be saving money on the labor rate. You also don't have to have a computer to work on them. You don't need to buy you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of dollars worth of special tools in order to work on them. Try being a solid DIYer on a new Audi, and you can just forget about it. You have got to have, you've got to have the computer to do just about anything whether it's brakes, whether it's resetting lights, maintenance lights, and, you know, add blue injection lights, you need a scan tool for all that stuff on new cars. Where on your older stuff, you just need some basic hand tools, maybe a slide hammer and a press, and you can pretty much do just about anything. Owning older cars is great, too, because, you know, you're not so worried about that brand new car getting a tiny little rock chip in the hood or a door ding. You're not so worked up about throwing a bag of mulch in the trunk and, uh, and and driving it home from Home Depot. It's nice to have a vehicle that's much more versatile in the aspect of you can do a lot of things in an older vehicle that you probably wouldn't want to throw a bag of mulch in your brand new Lexus. This next one is completely subjective, but I gotta say, there's a lot of older cars that really do have a cool factor to them. For some reason, to me anyway, and I could be like way off in left field from everyone else, Older cars tend to have more personality or more vibe to them that newer cars either don't have or maybe they just haven't earned it yet. And I'm not talking even like going to the way extreme of uh, of like an old VW bus that, I mean, we all know, we all know every VW bus out there has just such cool stories to tell. But a 30-year-old car has a cool factor to it, and it's neat, and it's different, and it's not going to get lost in the sea of mid-sized SUVs at the grocery store. There's also less emissions controls and inspections. So in North Carolina, once a vehicle reaches a certain age, it becomes exempt from our state inspections, a.k.a. our state money grabs. Uh, to be fair on the state money grabs, though, I did make a lot of money as a technician, so I have both a love-hate relationship with them. But it's still just another tax. Now, I don't mean that it has less emissions controls and sanctions and things like that coming from the standpoint of it's good to pollute. I don't think so. 
it is good from a standpoint of if your check engine lights on, you don't have to worry about spending a bunch of money to get your car fixed when there's nothing wrong with your car beyond, let's say, a gas cap or something minor. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. So there's a lot to be said about about the good things of owning an older car, especially if you can work on them. So you guys know, we have three cars. We have a 2015 Volkswagen Tiguan that typically my wife drives. We have a 2005 Volkswagen Passat that's got about 150K on it. I trust that car to go just as far as the Tiguan does. And then I have a 98 GTI. If you haven't picked up by now, I'm a VW dude. I spent my career as a VW tech, so it just makes sense. So we kind of live in the space of new car, older car, and then knocking on the door of a 20-year-old car, which I don't really count as part of our fleet of vehicles. But what would make you not want to have an older car? What would make you steer clear and go to the new car dealership and pick up that brand new Lexus that we talked about? Well, a lot, really. There's a lot of really great things about new cars. And I don't want to just say, well, an old car, you don't have a payment. And a new car, you do have a payment. Now, we talked about repair costs as a pro. And it, and it definitely can be, especially if you're a DIYer. But if you have to pay someone to fix your car, you can get caught in this weird age bracket of a vehicle. And it's a spot that nobody wants to be in. It's too new to really have like a collector value or sort of a, a fan base for it and have shops that really heavily specialize in that vehicle. And it's too old for your average shop to really want to deal with. So I'd mentioned the, the Ford dealership and taking it there and nobody working on it, nobody knowing how to work on it. We seen that with cars. Gosh, I seen that with cars like seven years old. And the car would come in, the, the new guys would scatter because they didn't know how to work on it, where the old dudes in the shop like me would run to it because we knew how to make all the money on it. So you can get caught in this weird space if you're having to pay someone. Parts availability also can play into this. Now, on a Ford, you're probably not going to run into a huge issue finding parts, but there may be some parts that you can't get anymore, and maybe it's not a part that's rebuildable. Maybe it's a small electrics board, and now you're hunting for one at a junkyard, or you're sourcing parts on eBay. So that's also something you want to consider, is you're not going to probably be able to run down to... AutoZone and pick up the part. It will really, really all depend. Something just one of those things I want to make sure you guys are considering when we're talking about working on and repairing older vehicles. And let's face it, older vehicles, they're finicky. You know, every time I hear, and I've heard it so much in, in my career, they don't build them like they used to. Whoever is saying that are 100% right. Because modern cars are better in just about every single way than older cars were. When's the last time you were driving and you had to think, I'm going to have to pull over when I get to a certain altitude to make an adjustment to my engine? I'm guessing that a good portion of you guys don't have any idea what I'm talking about. And the ones that do know what I'm talking about are like, oh man, I totally forgot about that. No, today we hop in our car, we put the key in the ignition, or we don't, we leave the key in our pocket, we push the start button, and we put it in drive or put it in first gear, and we go. While that is definitely something you can do in an older car, the odds of having more finicky issues are much, much higher than a new car. Now, newer cars 
do also have their finicky weird problems too, but they're usually not the type of problems where you can really do much of anything about. Or if they have that, it's you don't see the heated seat button when your hand is at three o'clock instead of I need to pull over and make an adjustment to my carburetor. When it comes down to it, modern cars, like I said, are pretty much better in every single way. They're safer. They get better fuel economy. They handle better. They drive better. In a lot of cases, they have more power. The ergonomics are better. They have better lighting and better visibility. And all the little creature comforts that we've grown so much to love, like convenience lane change for our turn signals and Bluetooth audio and CarPlay, adaptive lighting, adaptive cruise control, self Parking, we could go on and on for hours about all the new cool technology cars have. And these are things that older cars didn't have, and, and for some people that's great. They don't want them anyway. But I think once you get in and you have that, it becomes like having a remote for your television or a wireless mouse that I'm looking at right here. You pretty much just expect that this is now what a car has. So this this is really a tough one. This is so situational. You need to look at your needs for yourself your needs for your family, and see does two older vehicles meet these needs. If it were just me, I would have no problem owning two older vehicles, and if one broke down, I would just take the other one to work. But for my family, that doesn't work. We need two pretty reliable cars. I want one that's as safe as it can possibly be. I want my wife and my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter rolling around in a car that I don't have to worry about breaking down on them, a car that's as safe as it can possibly be. So I don't think I would put them in a 30-year-old car, but I wouldn't have a problem with it. For us, I like the idea of having one older car that's paid for, that, you know, while it's not a beater, can function as a beater, and then one newer car, if I'm going to have a car payment anyway, something at least new. I'm with Jack on this one. I kind of like the idea of a lease if you're the type of person that doesn't put a million miles on the car, takes pretty good care of them and wants a new car every couple of years, that does end up saving you a bit. Or you can just class up and buy a car that you probably wouldn't want to pay the note on every month. So with that, guys, I hope that gave you at least something to think about and some help planning out perhaps your next car purchase or whether or not you want to keep that 30-year-old car, perhaps put it up on Craigslist or Give it to your nephew that uh, that's turning 16 and let him have some fun with it and get yourself something new. If you want to see more of my stuff, head over to HumbleMechanic.com. You can check it all out there. You can also follow me on the normal social platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and whatnot. Guys, thanks so much. Keep the car questions coming. I hope you have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you again soon. Great stuff from Charles. Next, I have a question up for Brandon Todd. On a couple uh, new cryptocurrencies that are making kind of a big splash, and is it hype or is it real? Brandon, take it away. Hey, everybody. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, uh, here to answer another question for the expert council. This question comes in from Charlie, where he's basically asking, what's my opinion on BitConnect coin and Chaincoin? Do you think they are scams, or is there any practical application for these new currencies? Background. These coins have seemingly come out of nowhere and have rapidly rising market caps. They're getting a lot of publicity, which could be good, but it seems to be more of an Amway-style marketing buzz. Would love to hear your opinion. Thanks, Charlie. All right, well, this is a great question uh, to start talking about, you know, uh, how to analyze or uh, properly assess any of these 
these tokens, uh, coins, or platforms that are coming out. You know, so as a rule, I, I always treat any of these new things that I that I see uh, comes up on my radar as you know a scam until I can prove otherwise. So I, I go into it looking for evidence, uh, assuming right off the bat that it could be something to try to part me with my money or my Bitcoin or whatever. So you know, I also have to think about my personal you know, vulnerabilities. We all have things that we like in this world, and I've seen a wide range of uh, these different. Uh, Coins, tokens, platforms coming out anywhere from gambling to libertarian type style community token. Uh, and so, you know, whatever you're into, you know, we have we all have interests. So you got to ask yourself, you know, why am I drawn to this project in the first place? Um, is, it, is it playing into something I already like? Uh, and the reason why I say that is because it, it can kind of slip past your security checks uh, when there's some bias in there. And so something to be aware of. So let's dig into a BCC or BitConnect coin. It appears to be a lending service promising huge returns. Uh, you know, right off the bat, the questions that I have that are concerning is, you know, who who is who is trading this uh, on the lending side of it? Uh, some people have said there's there's bots um, that are trading this on their platform. Uh, I've poured through their web pages and I have found no. No evidence of bots. It might be there. I just didn't see it. But I, w- I would think that this would be a lot more uh, forthright or out in the open really quick. You know, the first question, logical question somebody needs to uh, think about is, OK, there's great returns. That's that's great. Uh, where is it coming from? And you need to you need to explain that in some sort of logical manner. Uh, otherwise, you know, I'm not going I'm not going to give you my money. But so it's, it's just very vague about, you know, um, who's who's generating these returns? Where is this money? Or value coming from, you know, it just says, come on in, uh, deposit your money and, and stake it. Or another, you know, another, when we say staking, there's like proof of stake protocols out there. And it basically means, you know, put your, put your coins or tokens into an address and it starts generating returns, right? So my question is, where does that come from? And it's kind of vague about that. So that's a red flag. You know, they have a very generous referral system. And so again, you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with referral systems, but as a whole in this space, when I see that, it, it kind of raises a red flag for me, especially if there's no identities associated with the entire project. A little bit of background information. The ICO was in November of 2016. Uh, they do have an active Twitter. Since 2016, when I clicked on the Twitter tab, it did work. So, you know, their Facebook tab I clicked on, it didn't work. I don't know if that's a, a drop link or something on their website, but that's a little interesting. Their GitHub shows only only their GitHub repository of where they keep all of their code that you can check out shows only one contributor with activity starting from January of this year and then no activity from February of this year all the way up to August till pretty much now. And the one contributor or developer is anonymous. So that's that's kind of weird. You know, if this is going to be the next big thing, I would I would assume there's going to be more people collaborating on this and there would be at least somebody kind of staking there coming out of the you know, different established coin spaces, you know, uh, with a with a proven identity. Uh, people know who they are. They're comfortable with their track record. Uh, but there's none of that here. There's one person. They're anonymous. And there's like no activity for months. So that's suspect to me. Um, they Like again, like I say, they have a proof of work slash proof of stake sort of uh, thing going on here. So they do have people mining this coin on the backside. And then there's uh, supposedly a, a way that you can stake these coin into an address, into a node wallet, like I said, and then it generates return. 28 million coins will be uh, produced, uh, two-minute blocks, two-minute block times with 10 Bitcoin connect, uh, BitConnect coin rewards per block. Another red flag for me is it's not traded on any, on any big exchanges. The only exchanges over 1 million in volume are, is the own exchange that they created for themselves and their, their token exclusively. And then another 
exchange called Nova Exchange. You know, I didn't, re- I've never really uh, checked out Nova Exchange until until this. Um, and, and none of these are big exchanges. You know, I use I use Bitfinex, I use Bittrex, I use Kraken, I use Pluniex. And those are those are like the big exchanges with lots of volume. And so if you see a coin across all of those exchanges, you know that's that's a better that's a better look than um, two obscure exchanges and, and really only one if you consider the one that they created themselves for this coin <laughs> and only this coin on that exchange. Then um, that's kind of a red flag. They're promising 120% return for staking your coins in a node wallet, um, and this seems to be the big the big appeal here. Uh, they don't have a white paper, so that bothers me. You know, there's no reference to all the technical aspects of how this stuff works together, you know, how their bot works. Does it trade moving day averages? What? How is it generating these returns? And another thing that's weird is there's two websites I, I found out with this project after digging in. There's one called bitconnect.co, and there's another one called bitconnectcoin.co. And if you click on bitconnect. Yeah, at first I thought that maybe there was somebody trying to um, take away from this project and just a quick scam of setting up a, a URL that was a lot like this coin to try to like guide people away from it and uh, run their own scam. But no, because when I, when I pour through both of these websites, I, I realize that the links track back to the same exchange, um, which is listed on you know, CoinMarketCap connected to them and also in their announcement on BitcoinTalk.org. So uh, that 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 shows that they're coming from the same project. But if you connect, if you click on, if you go to BitConnect.co, there's a tab that you can click on called What is Bitcoin? And you know it does a pretty good job explaining what Bitcoin is. And as you scroll down more and more about what Bitcoin is, it just starts sort of talking about BitConnect Coin without making a clear distinction that hey, now we're talking about a different token entirely. So I felt like that was very misleading and a little shady. Uh, I could see how somebody new to this space that just learned about Bitcoin might stumble upon this website and start, you know, hearing about this other thing when they click on a tab talking about Bitcoin, where they think now they're they're, they're hearing about Bitcoin and they might buy this other token rather than Bitcoin. So that bothers me. You know, the price is around $127 right now. The problem with that is. Again, the two exchanges. So, you know, they only have their proprietary exchange and then they have this Novacoin exchange. So in order to get that actual price, you need to go on just those two exchanges, get in and get your orders in and get out. Um, you know, to be fair, they do have liquidity over a million dollars on both of the, those exchanges. But, you know, as, it, as, as I understand it, you do need to stake uh, some of these coins to get a return in the first place. And so I don't know how available those are if they're staked. Uh, it might take a while before you can get that money back out to liquidate it. So I'm not sure if that's a, I don't know, a good a good valuation of the price, the actual price of what you can expect to get easily. Uh, so that's something to consider too. So you know, again, the big the big thing is what problem does this solve? Why would I use this coin? Why wouldn't I just use Bitcoin and some of the un- other lending services that are a lot more straightforward? Um, you know, these bots can be tricky. You know, I've used I've used bots in the past in this space public bots, you know, that are offering a service and that were very forthright about how their algorithms are, are calculated. And still, you know, none of them have really been profitable as far as my luck. Um, I think it's really, really hard to make bots uh, really, really smart enough to, to have uh, a gain all the time. And anybody who says they have a bot that always wins, I would be very suspect because uh, it's not that easy. You know, it's a bunch of random events that come together to make a market. Sure, there are patterns, but Ask any trader, you know, if trading was super easy to just go in there, kill it, and make tons of money, then uh, wouldn't everybody be doing it and just we'd all be rich, right? So something to think about with this project. I'm going to move on to uh, Chaincoin. Uh, the next thing here, uh, Charlie's asking about. So it looks like it's uh, sort of like a trying to be like Dash. That's the first uh, That's the first notion I get. 
So, you know, they have a masternode system with 25% payout. They have this uh, chained 11 system set up with Chaincoin. Um, and it's, again, it seems like to be sort of like a copycat of Dash because Dash has an algorithm called X11 with 11 different algorithms. Uh, the masternodes mix coins just like the Dash masternodes. Um, and then also like the Dash masternodes with Chaincoin, you have to stake a thousand coins into a Dash masternode address to, to have the um, opportunity to run a masternode. You know, the appeal to running a masternode on Dash or any other system that has masternodes in, in this space is, you know, you get a return. So with Dash, it's, it's 45% of the block rewards that get mined by the miners in the Dash uh, cryptocurrency go to the masternodes. So if you if you have a masternode set up and running, like you're in, you know, you're getting a payout just from running the code. Um, it's very, very attractive to a lot of people. But now that Dash is so high, over $300 a coin, I mean, you know, good luck getting a master node now unless you're you're rich, right? Uh, so um, I, that, that could be the appeal here uh, is, you know, come in and use our master nodes. Uh, at 20 cents a coin, you can still afford to get that thousand. And people are probably thinking it's going to do a lot of the same as like with the Dash master node system. They're, they claim to be generating 25 million coins uh, at the end of this, you know, throughout the history of this, this uh, project. Uh, it uses CPU slash GPU mining. Uh, so, you know, again, with this 11 algorithm system, it's, they're, they're claiming to be ASIC resistant, sort of like Dash, which is a good thing because then you don't have to buy specialized hardware like like an, an ASIC like you do with Bitcoin. So you could still mine this with your computer. Uh, they have 90 second block time with 16 chain coins per block. Uh, their Twitter account has only a thousand followers with only four tweets. Uh, and so that's a red flag for me. If this is going to be the next big thing, you're going to see a lot more activity because Twitter is where it's at in this space, you know, Twitter, Reddit, Slack. So if you if you only got four tweets in over a year or two, um, I don't know what's going on there. So, you know, again, it seems to be some sort of Dash uh, ripoff, you know, trying to capitalize on all this Masternode hype. Uh, their GitHub has enough commit releases to say that this is an actual project or pr- a pr- project with an actual product. But, you know, again, this is a... This is a clone from Dash, I believe, and Dash is a clone from Bitcoin. So, you you know, when you uh, cl- fork from something like this and create your own project, you get to inherit all of the history, the block history, as well as all of the um, commit history, all of the contributor development history on a GitHub. So, you know, for those that don't know, GitHub is just a repository system where you can um, parcel out different project attributes. So if there's a big uh, software project going on, you have people working on the front and the back and all these different things. You, there's some sort of system organization there to where people can work on things to collaborate over, you know, geographical spaces uh, all, over, all over the world and work on a project together. You know, you see like all this Bitcoin uh, stuff and then you see the, the, the Dash stuff and then now the, the fork of Chaincoin, you see the uh, the Chaincoin development. So you see uh, like commits from Gavin Andreessen and Luke Jr. from 2013 when they worked on this project, but then there's nothing. It like goes dark until 2017 because they dropped, they dropped it, and then now they forked it uh, later on. So that's something to think about if you start getting into looking at GitHubs on these projects and you want to see if there's any activity. You might see a whole bunch of history and activity just at first glance, but not realize uh, that you need to weed this stuff out and see if this is a fork, then it inherits all that stuff. So something I just 
checked out there, I thought was kind of interesting. There was a big long void of no activity. You know, there's, there's, they do have a big community. There's a lot of people on YouTube pumping this, a lot of people on Steemit pumping this. Um, so there are users. There is one guy in particular, um, on YouTube and has a big following. He goes by the name High on Coins. And I think his name is Max or something like that. Nothing against this guy. I don't know if he's a scammer. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I'm not going to say anything. I don't have any proof. I don't really have any reason to suspect that he is. He's got this uh, community of people that follow him. They're called hodlers, and it's just kind of a play on words because somebody one time misspelled the word hold in in this Bitcoin space, like hold your you know hold your coins, and instead he said H O D L or hodl. Uh, so it's kind of a meme like hodl 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 hold 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 your coins. Anyway, his whole thing is. Uh, uh, buy and hodl. So he's got a bunch of people together with him that are buying and, and holding these coins. And uh, their idea is, hey, if we all buy and hold, the price will go up. And uh, you know, maybe they'll cause a snowball effect, and more people will buy because they see the price go up. But I just, I don't think that that's a real uh, well thought through plan as far as long term roadmap for a project. I mean, there better be a lot more behind it than just a group of people that decide to buy it, pump it, and hold it. Because at some point, people are going to sell, people want to sell, and so if there's nothing behind it, <laughs> then that then I don't know where you go from there. So something to think about. I'll provide links to all this stuff. There is, again, with this, there's no white paper. There's nobody staking their identity uh, in any way. You know, I'll be the first, like I said, to support anonymity and privacy rights for the individual. But, you know, if I'm going to if I'm gonna buy something, a product or a service, you know, I need to see some sort of human connection to this because if there's not, then, you know, what's to stop whoever is running away with the money in the night? Uh, there's no recourse. There's no place you can go to and say, hey, what's going on? Uh, so I, I personally won't invest in either of these, but I'm not saying you can't come in here, you know, and make money. For Chaincoin right now, the price is around 22 cents. There was a big pump and then it dumped off and uh, maybe it'll go back up again. You know, maybe these things will live on and, and they can change over time uh, and get better or get worse. So, but as of right now, I'm just, I'm not, I don't, I don't trust it enough to put my money into it. Do that, do do as you will with with whatever this information. But I'll provide links for all this. Uh, some people that claim to have you know pretty good cases against these these projects, uh, claiming they're scams or whatever. So I'll provide links to that. So yeah, I hope these these this answers your question, Charlie. Uh, and this is Brandon from Crypto Skim signing off. So my short answer is I ain't touching either one of them. Uh, next up, I have a question for Patrick Rorman on getting a ding out of one of your blades. Patrick, tell us all about your dings, brother. Hey, guys. This is Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Dave, who is a satisfied MSB member. Question is, Patrick, what is the best way to get a ding out of a blade? Details. I have a beautiful Gransford Brooks small forest axe. It generally holds a beautiful edge but was misused at one point and now has two points of damage, one at the tip and one near the middle of the blade. I am wondering what would be the best method to remove these and restore the edge. I recently bought Beyond Razor Sharp and I'm working to improve my technique. If it would be helpful, I can send pictures of the damage so you can address Excess the severity, it is clear, uh, certainly possible that I may need to send it off to a professional to restore the edge, but wanted to get your instruction on this as it is not covered in the video. Also, uh, is there's a particular brand of whetstone that you recommend, perhaps an Amazon item of the day. So um, I thought that I covered it in the video, 
<clears throat> in my DVD. I'll have to check that, and hopefully when I do a revision of Beyond Razor Sharp, I can address some of the things that I've missed. The thing is about damage on the edge of a blade is the only way to get rid of the damage is to remove all the steel back to the point of which the damage occurred, which many times can be a pretty sufficient amount of steel. So the question is, is what's more valuable to have a flawless edge or the prolonged life of the tool? What I typically recommend is to continue sharpening the axe, and with time, that damage will completely be gone as long as you don't get any new damage to the to the blade. I'm more of one to leave damage on a blade if it means that I have to take off too much steel from that blade. The axe that you own is a great axe, and they're not necessarily cheap, so to shorten the life of the axe just for the sake of a few nicks in the blade to me, would not be reasonable. So just go ahead and continue sharpening the axe as you would if it didn't have the uh, nicks in it. And over time, those nicks will be gone. So as far as sharpening stones, um, I have listed on my site the stones that I recommend, and I'll provide a link. And if Jack wants to provide a link too, that's fine. Um, King 1000 Grit. Waterstone and a 6,000 grit waterstone is all you need to uh, start sharpening. Thank you for your question. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives reminding you to stay beyond razor sharp. Good advice as always from Patrick. Uh, I wanted to kind of finish up today just talking to you for maybe five, ten minutes on some of the things we should be learning in this current time of. Lots of disasters in our country. We have fires in the Northwest. We've just had Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. Um, we are about to have Hurricane Irma do damage. I can't even get my head around in Florida. Um, they're making a big deal about Jose, but Jose is probably going to cruise on out to the northern Atlantic and not really cause any problems. But something will come along next. It may not be a hurricane. It's It's been a while since we've had a major earthquake out in California. I mean, a big one that actually causes a lot of problems. And on some levels, we're getting better. We're building better buildings. and We're, you know, being better at creating fire breaks and, and all of those things. So sometimes that leads us to a false sense of security. One of the things that the that uh, Governor Scott of Florida said is, you know, one thing we have as an advantage in Florida is we have some of the toughest building codes there are, especially in coastal areas. And that's good, except that there's times when even when you've done your best, Mother Nature says, that's nice, too bad that I'm going to wreck it on you. And so we can't get into a false sense of security. But I think the big things that we can take away from this, number one is not to wait to do your prepping, your basic prepping. Your, your, your food, your water, your energy, right? Your, your, your concept of shelter. If you have to leave, what is your other options for shelter? Be that short term with a hotel somewhere and having pre-arrangements where you're ready to go quickly before everybody else jumps on it or uh, a secondary location, a family, you know, member that you can stay with. Um, I, I think we should be learning that people are stupid in, 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 in a large way with 
the, what they worry about in a disaster when it doesn't affect them. I mean, watching the, the idiocy on Facebook of people upset because some guy's filling up a drum of gasoline or some dude selling you know cases of water or something like that, you have a in, near-infinite supply of almost free water available to you 364, 365 days a year on average, right? It comes out of your faucet, and we talk about it all the time, to store that water up before you need it. If you have any bent toward preparedness in your mind, the last thing you should be thinking about for your own needs when you have to evacuate is, I need to pick up a case bottle of water on the way out. I, I mean, really. If you wanted to keep empty containers around so you could fill them up before you left, you could do that before you had to worry about a case bottle of water on the way out. Gasoline. Um, right now, people in Florida are having a very hard time getting gas, in spite of the fact that I believe Governor Scott is doing the best job I have ever seen a state's governor do in the face of something like this. Um, they're doing all they can, and it's still not enough because you can't get blood from a stone. The... The method, of course, that I teach, you end up with 60 gallons of gas on you. However, I'd point out that for a hundred bucks, if you pay full price, not on sale, you can get four gas cans. A hundred bucks. And then that's 20 gallons of gasoline. And, and 20 gallons of gasoline, if you have, you know, average car getting somewhere between, you know, low end 10 miles to the gallon, high end 40 miles a gallon. Just say the average vehicle gets 20 miles to the gallon, which I think is actually low. That gives your vehicle an, an extended range if you have the tank full of 400 miles. It is almost, it's not completely, but it is almost inconceivable that if you had at least a half tank in your vehicle and another 400 miles of range that you could not get to a place of relative safety in any of these disasters and to a place where you could get more fuel. It's almost, not completely, but it's almost inconceivable. So why do people not do it? It is, the, it is cheaper than the average person's car insurance every year, isn't it? And it might be far more important as an insurance policy to you when your life's on the line. My wife and I were talking the other night. She said, what about people that don't have enough money to get out? If you have a vehicle, you should have enough money to keep some gas put aside for it, and you should be able to get out. I think the other thing that we are beginning to learn, and this, this does differ, because a lot of times with forest fires or something like that, You know, we had the one in Canada where it was a mass exodus, but usually that's a little more spread out, and you might be able to wait a little longer to see if you need to, to bug out or not. But in these instances, like major storms that are coming and things like that, you need to stop listening to officials from the standpoint of waiting until they say you need to evacuate to evacuate. If, if I was in Florida in any type of a dangerous area for this storm, which is most of the state, honestly, I'd have been gone three days ago. Because at that point, you don't know which side it's going to tear up or whatever, but it's going to tear up one side, and there's 50% chance it'll be the one you're on. And it might tear up both, the way this is looking now. We might get right up the middle hit here in Florida. And I'd say this as well. If you are a person who can bug out, 
from one of these areas. There's a person of some level of means. It's not going to ruin your life to take a week off and then come back if nothing really bad happened. Then you should be one of the first people out. So that you're the hell out of the way of everybody else that you know isn't going to do it because a lot of them are wondering, if I leave, will I be able to make my rent next month if my house is still here? Or if my apartment's still here? And there's a lot of people that they should just leave anyway, but that's why they don't. They can't afford to, at least in their heads. And I, I personally think you can't afford to stay, but remember, I'm, the, I'm like the weatherman. I don't tell you the way things... I, I, I will tell you the way things should be, but I'm going to first and foremost tell you the way things are. And most people are not going to do the things that I'm talking about today. Another thing that I've seen in Florida is just lines and lines of people standing out in the hot sun, baking, waiting to get into Home Depot to buy plywood. Listen, if you live in a place where there are hurricanes, you know that sooner or later you're going to need plywood. And I wonder how many times some of these people bought plywood and got rid of it. You know, you can go out and buy enough plywood to cover all of the windows on your house, cut it to size, and stack it in an area that ain't very big because plywood's flat. And you can have it all ready to go so that when you need to evacuate, you just stick your plywood up on your windows. I was out in Florida one year when we did have a hurricane that came in. It ended up not being really bad for the area we were staying in. And we actually got out on a flight that was like between the bands of the outer bands of the west side of the hurricane, which is, you know, most assuredly the, the less the less dangerous side of a hurricane. It's the north, it's usually that northeastern uh, corner that's the worst, but the eastern side is where most of the rain and precipitation and surge goes. So we got out just in time, but they were boarding up all the windows on all the hotels. I did not see them going across the causeway from the island out to the mainland to buy plywood and bring it back. They opened up a shed and they pulled, and they had enough plywood to, to, to board up the whole damn hotel. And this is a pretty big hotel. Now, if they can do that, you can do it for your house. And people say, well, it's expensive. Well, it's going to be expensive when you have to go do it in the last minute, and therefore you might not do it, and you end up not protecting your home. So I think what we should all be doing right now when we look at what's going on out there is simply assessing ourselves and saying, if we had to leave, how would we do it? Would we be ready? How long would it take us to be ready? What are the major threats in our area? What have we done to prepare for them? Because these aren't like unknowns. If you live in the Pacific Northwest, you know that forest fires are one of your biggest risks. If you live in California, you know mudslides when the rains come, and forest fires and earthquakes are among your biggest risks. If you live on the Gulf Coast or Florida or the Atlantic Coast of the United States, you know that hurricanes are some of your biggest risks. If you live here in the center of Texas or into the center of the United States, you know that tornadoes are some of your biggest risks, along with ice storms in the winter. And that means that you have a blueprint. You know when it happens, when you're like, oh my God, it's happening. You know all the things right now that you're going to freak out and wish you had done. So for the love of God, don't just listen to the Survival Podcast. Practice the teachings that we teach every day, and go shore up those weaknesses before you do Anything else before you buy a silver coin, before you worry about a, 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 you know, a bunch of MREs, before you do any of that stuff, the basic food storage, basic energy, 
right? Gasoline and other energy sources, basic blackout kit, basic bug out kit, stored water, and a plan to leave if you have to. If you do that, 90% of what can happen to you, you'll be ready to deal with as best you can. I'm not going to say it's going to be like nothing happened at all, because if you come back and your house is gone, it's awful. But you'll be better prepared to deal with whatever comes your way. Please don't let my words fall on deaf ears today. And to those of you in Florida trying to get out right now, may God be with you, and please keep keep your head up. Keep keep your head together. Don't get in fights with each other. I know it's frustrating. Get out as quickly as you can. And if you get to some place and there's no place to stay and you have the ability, just keep going further. And remember, once you get far enough out that you're not really in any danger, think about those secondary highways and secondary towns, and you can probably find resources, a place to stay, and stuff like that if you don't have relatives to go stay with. And that kind of wraps up my, my segment on that today. Next, I want to tell you about my YouTuber of the day. I've been kind of going through the suggestions for YouTube channels and pulling up some of my own, kind of as as they came in, kind of in order. But I got this one today, and I thought this is important. I've actually talked about this type of thing, and God bless this young man. His name is Andy Fancher, and his his YouTube channel is called Andy Fancher Presents. He's a Dallas area uh, high school student who's taken upon himself to document the histories and the words and the opinions of World War II veterans, of which we are rapidly running out of those men. And he does a very good job with the production value of this, a very good job with stories of the history of the places that they've been. And when possible, he goes to their homes and talks to them and interviews them so that their stories can be preserved. Somebody needed to start doing this 10 years ago. But this young kid decided, well, nobody started 10 years ago, so like planting a tree, the best time was 10, 20 years ago, but the next best time is now, and he's doing a good job with it. Um, when I looked at his channel, I said, I definitely want to put this up today. Again, it's called Andy Fancher Presents. If any of you like are in, tied in with this kid or whatever, tell him to fill out a guest form. I'd love to have this kid on the show. We might even bump him ahead. Let me tell you another thing here today on the guest form. So I put out a call for guests, and I don't even know how many I might have lost over the last month. But for some reason, something happened, and all of my guest forms were getting thrown in, not to just the spam folder, but the deleted items folder on some filter that I made probably, you know, like I have, if, if, the, if the subject contains Viagra, just throw it in a deleted items file. Something, and I have to figure out what the rule is it's doing, at least I know it's doing it now, was taking all my, my guest survey forms and putting them in the lead. So I'm like, what? Doesn't anybody want to be on the show anymore? So today, just it just seemed weird to me that no forms came in based on some feedback I was getting from people. So I filled out one as a test, and it didn't show up. So I went in my deleted items folder in Outlook and typed in Wufu, which is the form manager that I used to make my forms, and over 20 guest forms popped up, and some from some pretty cool people I've been wanting to have on the show for a while. Uh, Tatiana Maroots, for instance, who I've played a song by her, and she does a, a, a podcast on cryptocurrency uh, on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, is going to be on the show at some point. And a bunch of other really cool people. 
including some people that I've been riding their butts, like, hey, you need to get on the air with me, Nicole Sauce. Um, and, and, and lo and behold, they're all sitting in there. So the reason I'm saying that is I'll probably take the guest form down again this coming week because I think we're going to be booked out through the year uh, at this point. Number two, if, if you don't hear from us, I'd say in the next two weeks, to at least acknowledge that we're going to book you, Go ahead and fill that form out. I'll leave it up because we probably lost yours. Okay. Um, and if you hadn't heard back, you thought I was just being a dick and didn't want to have you on the air. I'm not going to say we put 100% of the people on here because there's some I just go, this isn't going to work. But I'd say 90% of the people that submit, we, we get on the air. Uh, so resubmit if you haven't heard from us within a couple weeks. And just let me say I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to all of you that have been waiting to hear from us and, and thinking we just don't want to talk to you. Um, Technical gremlins happen, and fortunately I caught it. Fortunately I hadn't cleaned out the dadgone deleted items folder in forever, uh, so I was able to recover a huge amount of them. And uh, so I thought we were hitting some kind of a dry gulch or something on guests, and apparently I think it was close to 30 total applications that were sitting in there. I just sent them to Dorothy, and she came running into my office like, did you just send me a whole crap ball? I'm like, yeah, more's coming, just relax. I said, I actually really want to have Tatiana on. So I said, see if you can get her for next Wednesday, because this coming Wednesday next week, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy should be on, and then we're on vacation. And we'll, I said, we'll print them all out and go through them and prioritize them and, and, and try to get start getting in touch with people soon. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get caught up on that. And, again, I, I apologize, folks, uh, big time for that one. Everybody's doing a screw-up or two, as long as you admit it. And I'm admitting it. It's my screw-up. I don't know what I did, but I know that I did it. Uh, next up today, let me remind you guys about tspaz.com. If you want to support our show, you can go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and you can do your online shopping at Amazon through tspaz.com, and if you do that, you help support the work we do here at the Survival Podcast. And you can check out the deals of the day over at Amazon and do any shopping you want. The other thing you can do is check, take a look at our current items of the day, uh, and you can, of course, look through and see everything we've ever done. And I want to remind you, at the bottom of every review, you'll see a series of tags. For instance, today's is tagged Computers AZ and Electronics AZ. If you click on any tag at the bottom of any of these reviews, you'll see every review we've ever tagged that way. So it's a good way to see all the stuff we've reviewed. Um, today's item is a new one. I've been doing some Encore items lately just because I, I can't, you know, I've probably done 300 items at this point, and I don't come up with items just to come up with items. I, I have a core group of things I recommend, uh, and I, I stick to them because I've actually used them, and they're actually really good. Today I found something new for you, though. It's called the Lanshin 8 Outlet Surge Protector Power Strip with four USB port deck, desktop USB charging station. It's a mouthful, I know. They really should call this thing not a power strip, but what I would call it is a power tower. Uh, it has eight AC outlets, and it can supply up to a total of 1,875 watts, which is probably more than most of your outlets are going to let you draw anyway. Um, so it, it's almost an unlimited power. You know, It's more limited by the power available than a number of ports there. Uh, it, it does have surge protection. It has four USB ports that charge at 4.5 amps. So that's rapid, high-level charging there for you. And because it's running off an AC power source, you can actually get the same amount of power to all of your USB ports there. The thing I really like about it, though, is it's compact. It's kind of shaped octagon-ish, sextagon-ish, something like that. I really don't know because it's got long edges and short edges. 
Uh, so I think it's really an octagon, but not a true octagon, I guess. So it makes it compact. So what I think it's really designed for is like the office worker, home office worker. You have this thing set up on your on your desk, and you have your electric cables running, you know, under and back back up to it. That keeps everything organized. But you got a, a extra power there. So when you need to plug something in, I know when I need to plug something extra in, I'm almost like, damn it, do I really need to? Because I'm crawling on my belly down under the desk to plug it in. So your electrical power is right up there in front of you. Plus you can charge up to four smart devices. So it makes sense for that role. I have a couple other suggestions for it, though. Another one to me would be just a plain charging station for guests and whatnot coming to your house. Like if you have like an entryway table or something like that, you might not use a lot of the AC power, but it's there for anything you need, including, hey, I need to use the vacuum over here. Boom, right there you go. And it'll handle that high power you know, equipment as well. But just having those four USB ports sitting right there on a nice compact uh, situation, again, with surge protection, all the good stuff. Another thing that I think would be really good for is You know, that workbench that you have out in your shop, you know, and you need to plug in your, your drills and stuff like that and have up to eight power ports sitting right there that can handle high draw with surge protection, including if you have some bench equipment set up, like let's say a bandsaw and a drill press, you still have additional ports available. Plus, you have those four USB ports. So if you're like me, when I'm out in the garage doing anything, I'm usually listening to music when I'm out there, brewing beer or something like that. And, you know, being able to plug your phone in while you're listening to music, keep your power up so that you never have low power. So I thought that would be good, too. My, my best use for this thing, though, is and the reason I ordered one for myself, for your Stephen Harris, batter, Harris battery backup system. You know, you got your four or eight, you know, batteries sitting in your closet somewhere. And when the power goes out, you're going to run an electrical cord out to, like, the central part of the house and start putting those little orange things that Steve and I both recommend. Well, now you've got, you plug this thing in, you've got eight AC outlets, which is probably as much as you ever need to be running off a, a, a battery backup system ever. Plus, you've got all your USB ports. Now you can bring your end-loop batteries out and you can charge those up. And everything's, like, sitting on a kitchen table in a central location. So for all of those reasons and more, I recommend this now. When I, I, I found this concept, because I look at the deals of the day every day myself to see what's available there. And I go through T-Spaz, and you should too, right? And I found one that looked really cool a lot like this, and it was a couple bucks less. I think this less. This is like 33 bucks. This one was like $27. And I looked at it, and it had a lot of these features, and it looked cool. And I immediately liked the idea of it. The first thing I did was go to Fake Spot. It got an F. An F. A big old F and F, right? For being a cheater and gaming the system and having fake ass, false ass reviews. So I started going through Amazon and I found like four different ones that were similar and they all had big old fat Fs. When I found this one, it has a B, which means there might be some phony baloney reviews there, but there's over 300. And with a B, most of them are legitimate. And sometimes fake spot will get a few wrong and get what should get an A, a B. But when it says it's an F, it's an F. And when you ever find one with an F, you start reading the reviews, you go, yeah, that's an F. I like this very much. It's good for my closet. Uh, it doesn't go in your closet, dude. That type of shit, right? So good grade. Uh, over 300 reviews, 4.5 total stars, so you know you can depend on it. And I've checked out the company as well. They are you know, a Chinese company, like most of these electronics companies. But well thought out, uh, well thought of overall. Good grade from Fake Spot across the board. Good reviews across the board. No phony baloney. So I think it's one you can count on. 
I haven't actually got mine yet, but I'm pretty excited about it. You can check out the review on it today. So that brings us to our song of the day today. And John Adam had sent me his song of the day for the day and then sent me a follow-up and said, hey, the one that I sent you, like I, I can't actually find a version that I was talking about, so skip that one. Well, instead of skipping it, I want to keep stick to his schedule. And I decided to call an audible today and choose my own song. And I went back to one of my old favorites, Mr. Jimmy Buffett. And when it comes to Jimmy Buffett, what I love to do with you guys that aren't parrot heads, and if you want to know what a parrot head is, you wouldn't understand if I had to explain it to you. Um, but you non-parrot heads that think you know, you know what Jimmy Buffett's all about, that's heard like the Cheeseburger song and the Margaritaville song and the Get Drunk and Screw song, and that's what you think of when you think of Jimmy Buffett, is play these songs for you that are just these, these beautiful singer-songwriter-style songs that are deep and meaningful and, 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 and true musical poetry that show that this man, especially in his day, because I think Jimmy's days of touring are rapidly coming to an end. The last concert I went to, I was like, that's the last one I'm going to go to because I want to remember him the way I remember him. I want to remember the voice that you're about to hear in this song. But in his day, was an incredibly talented vocalist and still, I believe, an incredibly talented musician. And I think he's also reached the point that all these musicians that have these cult followings get to. I know you want to hear he went to Paris for the nine millionth time, but I don't want to play it again. And I think that's where he's got to. This is one of those songs that he never played a lot at concerts and all, though, and I kind of wish that he did. At least to throw some variety in there. It's called Wonder Why We Ever Go Home. It's not a lot of words to it. There's a lot of chorus mixed in. It makes it a you know, regular length song. But I want to read the, the basic words to you today. Years grow shorter, not longer. The more you've been on your own. Feelings for moving grow stronger, so you wonder why you ever go home. Wonder why you ever go home. People are moving so quickly, humors in need of repair. Same occupations and same obligations, they've really got nothing to share. Like driving around with no spare. River gets deeper, not shallow. The further you move down the stream, wonder if I can keep her as I race on to keep up with my dreams. How they shine and glitter and gleam. I wonder why I ever go home. And I think there's a lot of messages in this song. And I think one is that a lot of us have this place that we view of as home that we don't live anymore at. And it doesn't really have anything left for us. And sometimes that's like a person like me who just left a place with no future and had to go somewhere else. Sometimes that's an immigrant that had to leave behind family that they know they're never going to see again because they have an opportunity to do something else. Sometimes that's because of circumstance, that a destroyed family or something like that. But in the end, there's like this place you have this fleeting memory of that you have this idealized view of, but whenever you go back there, it's never really what you remember it being. It's, it's not really there for you anymore. And then I think there's another reality to this, that to truly pursue your dreams requires some sacrifice, some willingness to at least at times to be lonely or alone, some something that you will have to give up. And those dreams, they shine and they glitter and they gleam. And sometimes those dreams are false, and that, that journey is, is one that maybe should not have been taken. 
But I believe when those dreams are real dreams and you're really working for them and you're really building for something, they're worth the sacrifice. And then in our lives we find people that fit within those dreams that come for that journey with us and we don't have to go home because where we are becomes home. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Feelings for moving grow strong.